so the reading today comes from Mark 6, chapters 45 to 54. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. It is a joy to be here. Um, part of my story is I've been married for 34 years, coming up 35 in February. That's quite a lot, isn't it? That's why I've got the grey hairs, surely. <laughs> <laughs> Getting on a bit now. Um, but I'm still getting to know my wife. And she's still getting to know me. I'm still learning how to be a good husband. Last summer, uh, I had a sabbatical. And as part of that sabbatical, we went and did a marriage retreat or a marriage course. It involved writing letters to each other, expressing our feelings about all kinds of things. It's a little bit risky, isn't it? <laughs> so I think there was a fair bit of nerves around the place, certainly on my part, as to what I was going to hear and whether I'd better take it or not. And yet we both came out of it feeling like, actually, that was a really precious time. We were getting to know each other on a deeper level. And uh, God was just helping us to understand one another better. We're now reading a book together. Uh, <laughs> again, why? Why are we doing this? Because there's still much to learn about who we are and how to be with and for each other. We just had Mark chapter 6 read to us, or a portion of it. And Mark 6, the full chapter, is packed. Mark, Mark 6, the chapter, is just typical Mark. It's packed with, with activity. Much of it's focused on the question of who is Jesus? And it's still a question we need to face today. It's still a question that I need to face today. Do I really believe who he claims to be? Do I fully understand who he is? If I did, how would that change me? I still need to get to know Jesus better, even though I've walked with him for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. A bit more on the context in chapter 6. The chapter opens with Jesus performing miracles and powerfully preaching in the synagogue. The result was many people were amazed, but they didn't want to admit anything special about him. They were offended by him. This is the carpenter, they say, whose family we know. He can't be anyone special. Who is he? He's the carpenter. 
This is followed by Jesus sending out the 12 who preached, healed, and delivered in Jesus' name. King Herod hears about this, and a debate ensues about what? Who is this Jesus? Is he John the Baptist, whom Herod had beheaded, now raised back to life? Is he Elijah, or is he some other prophet? See this question running through Mark chapter 6. Then the apostles come back from their little um, ministry, and they report back to Jesus And they try to get to a quiet place together, but the crowds find them, gather around them. It gets late, and we get the feeding of the 5,000. And Mark gives us a little clue later in our passage about this story, that this specifically is connected to the story that follows. Finally, we have our passage, which we've just read. And I want you to ask yourself... As Mark has wanted to ask us throughout this chapter, if not the gospel, who is Jesus? Who is he revealed to be in this passage? And I want to walk through the story together as we go. I want you, if you can, to use your imaginations. I want you to be in the boat. I know that's easier for some of you than for others. But I want you to let your imaginations go. You're in the boat as this story unfolds. So we know that just before the feeding, Jesus was trying to get some solitude but failed because he was found and they gathered around him. Now, at last, Jesus is going to get some solitude. He dismisses the crowd and he sends the disciples on ahead and Jesus gets some quiet time to pray to his father. It's a desire and a habit that we see around Jesus throughout the Gospels, don't we? Looking for that time to get away, to be with God. Not a bad habit for us to cultivate. The disciples are in their boat, doing their thing, and it's tough. Now, don't miss this. They are fishermen. They know what they're doing. They know how to sail. They know how to roar. I'm sure they've been in storms and rough seas before. They probably think this is one of those areas that they're experts in, and it isn't going well. It's maybe the area they think, we can do this ourselves. We don't need Jesus' help. We don't need God in this. This is what we do. Do you ever think like that? I'm sure I do. Do you ever compartmentalize? This is kind of what I do, and I know I can do it fairly well. And this is the area where I need God. When I'm in crisis or when I need, I'm in need, then I turn to God. But for the rest of it, I just carry on doing my thing. Here they are doing their thing, and they can't do it. They're struggling. They're straining. Recognizing maybe eventually that they need something more than their own skill. While they're doing their thing then, Jesus is doing his. He's out there praying on dry land and he sees them straining at the oars, but he continues praying. Don't miss this. He sees them. Maybe someone here today just needs to know God sees whatever, wherever, however God sees. Jesus sees them. But it's not until just before dawn that he goes out to them. So they've been there some time, it seems, straining at the oars. Why the delay? Have you ever felt like that? God, will you hurry up? 
The psalmist certainly gets impatient with God at times, doesn't he? Psalm 89, one example. How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We do feel like that at times, don't we? I do. I've definitely felt that over these last few years. And still have some of those feelings from time to time. Do we think we shouldn't because we're Christian? I do think God can handle our heart cry that goes, how long? Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you acting more quickly? He knows anyway what we're feeling. So why not simply be honest? We hit our storms, don't we? We hit our waves, sometimes in the area in which we think we're expert. We're tossed around. Absolutely, we cry out, how long is this going to continue? We're going to be grandparents for the first time in April. Can't wait. I don't think my daughter is quite at this stage yet, but for those of you who've had kids, you do get to this stage where you think, will this child ever come? Don't you? Probably the pregnant women understand that more than anybody else. And it's like that in the storms of our life sometimes. Will will this ever change? Are you ever going to act, God? Are you ever going to move? Are you ever going to intervene? The psalmist seems pretty content to lift those cries to God, and I think we can too. Jesus sees them from the dry land and eventually comes to them walking on the water. What were they supposed to think? (coughs) You're there right now. Dawn's coming up. You've been sailing all night, straining at your oars. And this, this what? Never seen this before. Someone walking on the water starts coming towards us. What would you think? They think it's a ghost and are terrified. Probably not surprising. But who is it that walks on the water? And I think this is one of the things that Mark wants us to consider. As we ask the question, and Mark asks the question, who is this Jesus? And he describes this story of this apparition, person, whatever, they don't know yet, walking on the water. I think Mark wants us to reflect back and ask the question, who is it that walks on the water? In Job 9, it says this, he, speaking of God, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. The words used there in the Greek, when it's translated into the Greek and compared to Mark, are almost exactly the same. In both scenarios, there's walking on the waves, the storms, there's a stormy sea going on, and it's God who walks on them. In the Old Testament, the seas are often described as the place of chaos, the place where the sea monsters, who in the scriptures are named Leviathan, Rahab, the dragon, that's where they dwell. And listen to this in Psalm 89 again. You, God, rule over what? The surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. In that psalm, the Defeat of the sea and Rahab, this monster at the time of creation, are presented as the place where they draw their confidence from that God will deliver them again. In your storms, 
Where does your confidence come from? Can you look back and see what God has done in your life before? Can you see what he's done in other lives, how he's delivered them? Does that give you a semblance of confidence that, yes, he's going to act again, he's going to move again, he's going to be involved again? I think that's one place we can go to draw confidence. But have you ever noticed this little phrase that Mark uses in this passage that probably we just miss? Shortly before dawn, this is uh, verse 48, he went out to them walking on the, the lake. He was about to pass them by. Really? Why? Why? He's seen them straining at the oars from dry ground. He's seen that they're struggling. He's seen that they need help. Yet he's about to pass them by. Even after he's done that walking on the water bit. He's already on the water. That's amazing. But he's going to walk by. I think it's another clue from Mark. That Mark wants us to see that when this language passing by is used, it's almost a trigger, a clue that there's going to be a moment of revelation to come. Where does one of the great passing by moments happen in the Old Testament? Happens around Moses. In Exodus 33 and 34, do you remember that time where Moses is having this conversation with God and he says, unless your presence goes up with us, then we can't go from here. And he says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And they have that conversation about God going to put him in the cleft of a rock. And how he can't see his face, but he can see his back. And then in chapter 34, it says this, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming what? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It was a massive revelation of who God is. Did Mark put this passing by in as a trigger? At least to his readers, even if the disciples in the boat don't quite have eyes to see yet. That here is a revelation about to come. A moment that points us to who is Jesus. And it's both a moment that says what God does, Jesus does. And reveals something of the character of this Jesus Coming to us in the storm. It's about to be revealed. Does God ever make out as if he'll pass us by? Is that what the delay is when we go, how long, Lord? Not ignoring, because we know he sees. But actually, getting our attention. Maybe wanting me to pursue him. A bit more. To intercede. To seek him. To grow in my trust in him. And somehow he's wanting to almost pass me by. To get me to move towards him. I don't like it. I'd far rather he did what I want. When I want. And how I want. The genie in the bottle. That satisfies me. But he has another agenda. And I wonder if it's part of that. Calling me to a deeper place that is this passing by, this delay. Last summer, as well as doing a marriage course, 
we ended up at, uh, uh, on a retreat at Felde Brennan, which I think I've spoken to you guys about before from a previous visit. But this was another time, second time I've been to Felde Brennan, which is a, a prayer retreat place in kind of North Wales. And we'd been through pretty tough time as a family over a number of years, to be honest, both in family life and work situations. Things were not encouraging. Things were pretty difficult. At times, we felt pretty dark and pretty desperate. And I don't know if you know or remember or some of you have been, but as you go to Felde Brennan, there's this promontory that overlooks the valley below, the, um, below, below where Felde Brennan is, up the hillside. There's this promontory. And on this promontory is this cross. And so it's looking over the valleys with the backdrop of the sky. It's a pretty dramatic scene. And as we approach this cross, you walk down this thin pathway to get to it. I just found myself encountering God in a way that I didn't last time I'd been to this place. So it wasn't just a repeat. And I found myself as I was standing there by the cross and thinking and praying, just actually gripping hold of the cross and leaving almost mentally and then physically later, writing some stuff and putting it under some rocks at the bottom of the cross, stuff I wanted to leave at the cross. And, the, and then as we continued in our retreat, one of the scriptures that... God spoke to me through, is that Psalm 139, which talks about, you know, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to the deep, if I make my bed in the depths, even there you are. And there's a phrase in that Psalm that says this, even the darkness is as light to you. And God started to speak to me and started to say that even though you can't see, I can. And started to realize that God's sight is not hindered at all, is not lessened at all by the darkness that seemingly surrounds me, that he sees it all in this storm that is not yet fully over, but in this storm that we'd walked through as a family and have been walking through, God started revealing something more of his character to me. And I found it an incredibly powerful time away. The storm becomes a place of encounter, a place of revelation. I'm going to add one more bit to this. Last two, I don't know, two, three weeks ago maybe, uh, my son uh, was out with a mate of his who's uh, the, both believers and this mate is quite a prophetic guy and happened to be come, come to our house because they've been out together at the end of the day. This guy left and then about two minutes later came back and I think the door was still open. Uh, he obviously hadn't shut it properly when he went out. <laughs> walks into the door, walks into our house and he's suddenly there again and says, can I pray for you? And um, we hadn't planned that. We hadn't orchestrated that. But he'd felt, as he'd left, he'd felt God speak to him that he needed to come back and pray. And for us, it was one of those moments, and we're still in some of that storm. It's one of those moments where God starts revealing. God starts speaking. That was nothing to do with our orchestration, our management, our arranging. But God saw and he spoke. As he passed, looked to be passing these disciples by. I think we need to see it's a moment of revelation. And that maybe for us, in those storms that we face as well, that's when God wants to reveal something more of who he is. 
All the disciples see at this stage is a ghost. Misunderstanding who Jesus is, despite the walking on the water, despite the passing by that I think Mark's put in there, they don't get it at the, mo- at the time it happens. They were just terrified. But let's not judge them. I might well have been terrified too. And dare I say that in the storms that come my way, there are times of anxiety, there are times of fear, there are times of being afraid. It's just being human, isn't it? But God, help me see, not simply a ghost, but who Jesus really is. Jesus then, as he approaches the boat, speaks. And he says, it is I, or literally, I am. Now, where have you heard that before? You know how I'm approaching this text. Where have you heard that before? To whom was God first revealed as the I am? At Moses, at the burning bush. But here we have now Jesus saying, I am. And this isn't just a prophet. This isn't just John the Baptist raised from the dead. This isn't the carpenter's son only. But this is God himself, the I am, now revealed as human, coming to them in their storm. Jesus gets into the boat. The wind dies down and it says later, they reach their destination. Now they turn to amazement. Their fear of a ghost is turned to amazement at what has taken place. And they still don't fully get it. But of course they're amazed because not every day does someone walk on the water and still the waves and the storm. And Jesus subdues these waves and controls creation just as God does at that first creation account. When he separates the waters, when he puts the skies in place, when he causes dry land, who is it who subdues and controls creation? God himself. And now is this one walking on the water and causing the storms to die down. He's the one. Who is sovereign. And he gets into the boat and the storm is calmed. And they reach their destination. There's hope for us. That if he is in the boat. If he is speaking into our lives. That he is sovereign. And whether we can see it or not. In the darkness I can't. We will yet get to the destination. That God has for us. In those long moments of will it ever change? Is he in the boat? If he's in the boat, we'll get to our destination by one way or another. And Mark, as I say, gives us this clue at the end of his story of how we're supposed to understand this. He says... um, Says it, their hearts were hardened. He says about their hearts being hardened that they didn't understand. Mark says they were completely amazed because they had not understood about the loaves. Sorry? Has that ever struck you as strange? We've just had the story about Jesus walking on the water. And Mark says they didn't understand. Because they didn't understand, or their hearts were hardened because they didn't understand about the loaves. So, sorry, is that a typo, Mark? Do you mean they didn't understand about the walking on the water? Because that's what you've just been telling us about. 
We have to look for these little clues in the text. And Mark is saying, no, they didn't understand because they didn't understand about the loaves. Mark is clearly connecting this story with the story of the feeding. Through whom did God provide for his people in their wilderness? Here is Jesus now walking on the water in Mark 6 that follows the feeding of the 5,000. An obvious allusion to Moses feeding the children in the desert places and Moses at times also led the children of Israel through the waters. Here is Jesus walking on the water having done the the feeding We're supposed to notice the connection. This is God's prophet. This is the one like Moses that in Deuteronomy 18 we're told, look for the one who comes and comes like me, Moses writes. Another prophet like Moses. We're told to look for him. But here we see that this one who is that prophet is more than a prophet. This one subdues creation. This one is sovereign over creation. This one is just like God. Maybe he is God. They're supposed to start to see. And once they get to their destination, normality is resumed. Crowds gather. Healings take place. There's amazement. That's a good new normal, isn't it? Normality resumes. I'd like a bit more of that normality. (laughs) Healings and deliverances and things like that. Where are you in the boat? You're still thinking he's a ghost? You're starting to see. I have no idea what's going on in your lives. But here we're set up to see the prophet like Moses has come. But this one is not just a prophet. This one does what God does. This one fulfills the Old Testament hopes and expectations. And he's right here in their presence. As the disciples face the storm in their area of expertise, Jesus, unrecognizable to them at first... Yeah, true, isn't it? Do we always recognize when Jesus is acting? I don't. Jesus arrives walking on the water, having just fed them and the people in the wilderness. And as he steps into the boat, the winds die down and they reach their destination. Whereupon Jesus continues doing what he's been doing all along. Not phased, not caught unawares. Not caught out, seeing it all. Mark has two accounts of sea calming. First one in Mark 4 ends with the question in verse 41 of chapter 4 with, Who then is this? In this second account in Mark 6, the who then is this is being answered. This is Jesus. The Christ, the coming one, the one who fulfills all the Old Testament hopes. And so for us readers of this story, way after Mark, in our storms, 
we cry out. We strain at the oars, even in our apparent area of expertise. And God sees you and he sees me. And in his time, he comes to us. He comes and calms the storm. He gets us to the destination he has planned for us. And often in the midst, he reveals more of himself. He grows us and takes us deeper with him. Amen. 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 Bless you. Thank you, Phil. An amazing word. God sees you. God knows what's happening in your life. If you're in a storm at the moment. And of course, then we see that God speaks. And God takes them to the place where he wants them to be. Can I just take a moment before we, uh, we worship together just to be still. And uh, for you to pray, to present what's happening in your life to your Heavenly Father.